This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me as he is every single week, fresh off the Dallas Comic-Con, is Matthew Rushing. Matthew, last week we told everyone that you were going to be going to the con. You were there, I saw you tweet some pictures out through Instagram. How was the weekend? Chris, uh, I got to say it was fantastic. Uh, one thing, so I get into the, the hall where all the stuff is that you can buy stuff. And coolest thing ever, I see they have these huge towers of like t-shirts, you know, you can buy like all these geek t-shirts. Mm-hmm. And one of them I see is devoted specifically to Star Trek. And it just says Star Trek in the big TOS font. And I was like, must go there first. So I go over there, Chris, and they're selling all the awesome Star Trek stuff that you see on Think Geek right there for all pretty much the same kind of prices. And uh, I was able to get, you know, those, uh, I don't know if you've seen them, but those uh, Enterprise uh, shot glasses. They're not really shot glasses. They're more like whiskey size like glasses. Like the ones that Archer would use with Shran to drink Andorian Ale? Kind of like that, but it's, a, yeah, it has the, it has the, the uh, the insignia logo from TOS, the Delta Shield. Oh yeah, I've seen US those. Enterprise. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, really, really nice. So I got those. Um, another company has started making uh, athletic style shirts, you know, in the sport material. So I got uh, a blue one of those, so I could go running in. Um, okay. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, so yeah. some great stuff. Cool had there really excited and it was just a lot of fun i got to see the tng cast we had michael dorn lavar burton um frakes everybody uh, except gates mcfadden right everybody except gates mcfadden and patrick stewart okay now i did see william shatner himself as as the cast called him the shat the shat uh, i saw him yeah. that's right so which was really cool i mean now i've seen leonard nimoy and william shatner in person so I, I guess life is, is over, really. What, what else is there? <laughs> well, I don't know. Have you seen Nicole DeBoer in person before? Chris, you would bring up that sore spot in my life, wouldn't you? <laughs> We're going to have to arrange that somehow. I'm going to go cry and I'll be back. Okay? <laughs> oh, maybe Nicole and uh, Gates McFadden can appear somewhere together on stage. That would just be your ultimate. Um, you know, I'm picturing, you know how you can get your picture with so many of the cast? You know, in fact, uh, you could have gotten your picture with all of the TNG cast for a mere $275. Um, but I'm picturing one where I get 
my picture between Nicole DeBoer and Gates McFadden. I, oh. I don't know if, uh, I, I feel like I might die if that happened. I, I would die. I would have some sort of heart attack or whatnot. And Beverly would save me, of course. And then Dax could then counsel me through my experience. So, yeah, this is sounding better all, all the time. And what if Karen Gilden photobombs in the background? Oh, gosh. Oh, <laughs> too much awesomeness. Too much awesomeness, Chris. Oh, man. Uh, so it was great. The, the con was great. You know, if you get a chance, especially if you're here in the States and uh, one of the conventions you're going to is having this TNG panel. That would be awesome. Um, please go. Now, I do have to share one quick story. So the cast has been together for a long time now. And, and, and they even mentioned, you know, they don't really get stories that surprise them. LeVar Burton surprised them all by telling them a story they had not heard yet. Wow. So I'm going to tell it to the listeners. He was talking about, somebody asked him how uh, he got into acting. They asked every single one of the cast. And so they just kind of went down the line, Shatner included, about how they got into acting. And uh, LeVar Burton talked about how he had been in seminary, actually, for two years to be a priest and decided that that's not what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He wasn't sure what he was going to do. He said, you know, uh, growing up, he was a rather pudgy child. In fact, they called him Poppin' Fresh. <laughs> really? Apparently, because after the after the Pillsbury Doughboy. Yeah, yeah. The cast did not know that. And so Michael Dorn, I think it was, was like, oh, LeVar, big mistake. You should not have told him that. And he was talking about Brent, who just loves to rag on everybody. Right. Oh, my gosh. So they had not heard that story, that, that LeVar Burton, Poppin' Fresh. So, well, I think the reason they hadn't heard that story is because if he had told them that back in the day, everyone on the set would have called him Poppin' Fresh for seven years. Exactly. <laughs> well, and now it's just going to happen at conventions. So I felt really bad. LeVar let it slip. Well, and uh, well, Poppin' it is. Well, you know, most of them are on Twitter now. So I have a feeling there's going to be some, hey, Poppin' Fresh, <laughs> how's it going today? Coming from Brent Spiner. Yeah, I bet that shows up. Uh, oh my gosh, it was funny though. Uh, those guys are hysterical. So if you get a chance, go see them because they really are funny. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like a comedy show up there with those guys. Well, that sounds great. I hope I will get to see that at some point. So it sounds like the convention was big for you. My news this week is not nearly as big as yours. What happened for me finally is the, the official Starships collection launched in Japan, and I oh, do yeah. now have my Enterprise D, the first ship. Get released. that a little bit closer there, Chris. I want to showing it to Matthew here on the camera right now. So I've seen the pictures there on Trek Collective; they do a great job. So how does it actually look? Because every it's time beautiful. I see the pictures on there, I'm not really impressed. Right, because I thought that they were about the size of the old Micro Machines. Right. But they're they're big. I mean, you can see here on the camera as I'm showing, of course, listeners can't see this, but you can see that the Enterprise, if, if I stretch my hand out from my wrist to the tip of my fingers, the Enterprise is almost the same size as my hand. And the, the detail of the paint job is just absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm really excited to see some of these more obscure ships mm -hmm. that they have in the collection. Definitely. When those come out. So that's my news for see, this I'm. Week. Yeah, and I'm see Chris, I'd be interested in getting, you know, cuz you you don't have to subscribe. You can just pick up, right. you know, uh a, a, a copy um along with the ship that goes with it. And so I'm thinking, man, when you get to the place where you're giving me like the Aventine or yeah, the Titan, that would be cool. I, sign me up because there's no other place you can get those yeah. ships. And in fact, just quick note to listeners, I was I was reading uh Diamond Select Toys, they have an answer and question a question answer thing that they do with uh, fans 
and they did a Star Trek one recently, and I got the feeling that the Defiant may be in the works. Uh, yeah, I think it is. And yeah. I'm oh, really Diamond excited Select. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Diamond mm. Select, yes. So super excited about that yeah, because be cool. uh, they really do a great job. And and uh, the Defiant hasn't been seen since the Playmate days. And right. so yeah, there was a uh, model that really... you could get. I forget who made the model, but there was a model that was made somewhere. But yeah, it's not a ship you get to see very often. Exactly. So, um, and it's a really popular ship. Even if you're not a, a DS9 fan per se, the Defiant itself is a ship that a lot of people like yeah. because it was so unique. Most and definitely. So, love to see that happen. Well, let's go ahead and jump in. We don't really have any news this week. What we're going to do is we're going to give you our impressions of John Byrne's photo comic, The Mirror Cracked, which just came out last week. We've been looking forward to that. And then after that, in the future, we're going to be joined by our friend Keith DeCandido to talk about his new book, The Klingon Art of War. So stick around for that. So, Matthew, let's just jump into the comic here. I'll just tell you right off the bat, you know, we've been kind of skeptical about this whole thing and especially it becoming an ongoing. I'm hooked. I thought it was great. Chris, I'm with you there. Um, I I think... Uh, we had talked about when we read the first issue that they released that we thought it had a lot of promise, uh, mainly because it, it really does feel like a TOS episode. It, it feels like you're watching a brand it new episode. It really does, yeah. And I think that's one of the neatest things. Now, just impression-wise, though, as you're looking through, there are some scenes in here that look so good. You know, just the work, the Photoshop, mm-hmm. everything that's been done. Is fantastic, and then there are some scenes that might stand out to you as you're looking a little bit closer, especially if you're, you say, you're on comic comicsology and you're reading in the zoomed, so it gets to each box. Do you read that way? You're definitely. Uh, sometimes I do, yeah. um, especially when I'm having trouble a little bit following the flow. Okay. Of, you know, yeah, it, it'll automatically let you know where it's going to go, right. which is fantastic. Yeah, you know, cool. um, because it means you can really follow the story. Mm. But when you do that with this, you will get some of those scenes where you see eh, the Photoshop work here is a little sketchy. You know, I thought about that too, but I actually think it's done on purpose. Like I look because I'm I'm a real Photoshop guru. I've been using Photoshop for my mm-hmm. work now for t- more than 20 years. So I, I really know the ins and outs and I can do all kinds of amazing stuff with Photoshop. And so I know exactly the techniques that John Byrne is using here to do this. And when I look at some of the... like you're talking about here, if you zoom in, you can sometimes see where he's cut people out and put them in and the edges mm-hmm. aren't necessarily clean and you can tell, but I got to thinking about it. And I'm thinking when you look at everything that, that he does in here, he's got the technique not to do that. So I think he's actually doing it on purpose so that it has that feeling that it is being stitched together. Yes. Yeah. I think you might be right there. Um, there are also a couple of scenes where he's, he's kind of created the inside of like, say the Klingon ship. Yeah. That was an interesting one. And it was very interesting, but it, it doesn't always look amazing, but I guess that's okay because it's TOS. So, I mean, the sets weren't awesome anyway. That might also be why it's done that way. Yeah, exactly. And so, well, and I think part of it is this, Chris, is since we never saw the inside of a TOS Klingon ship like this, um, it's completely a Photoshop creation. And therefore, it doesn't completely fit with all the other sets that we're seeing, especially on the Enterprise, um, where we've we've seen that before. But on a whole, I, I I completely agree with you, Chris. Not only is this a fantastic story, this it's it's the mere cracked, 
which is a continuation of Mirror Mirror. And it does a great job of, one, carrying on that story very smartly to let you know what happens next in that universe. Um, but, two, adding some really fun characters like uh, Kor shows up yeah. with the Klingons here. Um, you've, you've got Kirk and Spock from the other universe popping over to our universe uh, and, and walking around. It's kind of fun to see both Spocks together because we didn't see that in the actual episode. I love... Now, one thing about this is that Mirror Spock who is now Captain Spock in the Mirror Universe, comes over, but he shaves his beard so that he can blend yes. in. And I love yes. McCoy's solution to the problem of telling which Spock is which, where he uses some kind of accelerated growth injection to get the beard to grow back. Yeah, it's basically, he, he's like, it's basically like he ran a dermal regenerator yeah. over the hair so it grew faster. Now, I do have to say, the, the pictures where the beard has been added, yeah. you can totally tell. <laughs> you can, but I also thought that was done on purpose. It's kind of funny yeah. because because McCoy does explain that he has, he has artificially accelerated the growth of the beard, and so the beard doesn't look quite right. Right, which is, yeah, again, this is what makes it great is just the kind of the goofiness and yeah. the silliness yeah. that we associate with TOS is there. Yeah. But then the depth of the storytelling is there as well. And I, I think um, this, if this is going to continue, Chris, which we know it is, they, they've ordered this as a series right now. Yeah. It's going to be great because every two months we're going to be getting a brand new TOS episode. And uh, I'm really thankful for this. That, you know, Like you said, we were skeptical in the beginning. We, we didn't know what to think. We didn't want to judge it prematurely. But just kind of what we saw, we were like, eh. Yeah, You know, I don't want to say meh because I hate that word, but that's kind of how I felt about it. And then, you know, John Byrne won, won me over with his fantastic work here. So um, yeah. it, it just goes to show, I think hard work really pays off well, when you're doing something like this. I also think that, I mean, it shows, first of all, the creativity level of what he's doing is really fantastic. Because this, the Photoshop work here and the taking characters from different scenes and creating new scenes from these stills, this is way, way beyond what he did with the first one that we read. I mean, he, this is really on a different level. And also it shows how important the storytelling is because the thing is that this is such a good story that you could take all the images out of here and just write this out as prose and it would be a great short story or novella. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you. I, I feel like the the quality of the work here is definitely something that we would see in a novella mm -hmm. um, that we've been getting. And, um, or like we said, honestly, this, you could turn this into a TOS episode and it would work perfectly on screen. I mean, there's nothing here really that you couldn't have done back then, except for the fact that we visit a Klingon ship and a bridge, which uh, that set would have been expensive for them to do yeah. because, you know, you can't just reuse the Enterprise. It's a lot easier to pull off explosions this way too, though. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, it is great because you can you can make uh, CGI explosions and, and they work really, really well uh, here. And so you just add a lot of fire around the ship, you know, just mm -hmm. Photoshop some fire around it and it works pretty well. I also so. love, there are some scenes in here of the ships that are, they're really cool because the ship image is so sharp that it almost looks 
like an illustration, but it's not. But then it has the cartoonish swoosh or the cartoonish warp stream behind it as you're going to warp and sort of a solid gray, a gradient from a darker gray to a, to a light gray and back. And it, it looks really, really cool. It does. It looks very, very good. Um, it, it gives it that kind of, you know what this reminded me of a little bit is, is that old Batman TV show right, yeah, a little bit. Exactly. Every once in a while, you'll see the beep, beep, beeps or boops or something yeah, yeah. on the, on the page yeah. or something like that. Um, and then, like you said, those swooshes and stuff like that with the ship, it, it, it all just fits the time period. And, and you can tell that John Byrne has, has been somebody who's watched a ton of TOS been a lot of time trying to get this right and I, I again i really just think that it's paying off and gotta say the end here for <laughs> mir kirk is yeah. very funny i was gonna so. mention that too i'm not gonna say what it is but i love the little tag ending it was fantastic yes it was awesome yeah so so i i highly recommend anyone who has been looking at this and thinking i don't know if i really want to read this go pick it up it's a great continuation of Mirror Mirror. I love the fact that it's a story set in the Mirror Universe, That it's, but it's not just here's a new story in the Mirror Universe. It actually ties into the episode Mirror Mirror in a way that makes sense and that's really fun and just great writing. You know, I think that I'm going to give this one 10 out of 10 thumbs, which is a gigantic <laughs> action sound across frames in this comic well chris uh i'm gonna go with that rating but i'm gonna go 10 out of 10 flaming battle cruisers playing okay. on battle cruisers so <laughs> very good very good well matthew before we jump into the feature let's move from comics to audio format for just a moment here and tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show, audible.com. They are the best source for audiobooks that you'll find anywhere online. They have over 150,000 titles waiting for you right now, and they put hundreds of new titles on the site every single week. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, absolutely free, just for trying Audible. And what we like to do every week is to help you choose what that free book will be by making a recommendation. And today, because in the feature, we're going to be joined by Keith DeCandido to talk about the Klingon art of war. I thought, Matthew, that we should go with a Klingon book today. And in the art of war, there's a lot of Klingon terminology in there, a lot of Klingon words being thrown around. So conversational Klingon seemed like the perfect choice. And this is the book that was written by Mark Okrand, who created the Klingon language, narrated by Michael Dorn and also Mark Okrand. Yep, Chris, this is the perfect book to go with the Klingon Art of War. So one, you can know how to say all those Klingon phrases in there, as well as understanding how to speak Klingon. And does it get any better than it being read by Michael Dorn? Well, I don't think you could have anyone else read this, right? It's got to be Michael Dorn, especially at the time that this book was written, because this was back in 1992, when The Next Generation was at its peak. And so Worf was the Klingon on the scene at the time. But no one does cling on better than Michael Dorn, I have to say. I don't really think so. Um, the only person that I could think of that might be pretty cool to listen to would be J.G. Hertzler. Uh, yeah. As more talk reading the book as well. Yeah, I could agree with you on that. Of course, at the time that this was recorded, he was not yet performing the role of Martok with the greatness that this he is came true. to. 
So <laughs> you could definitely see like an updated edition of Conversational Klingon read by J.G. Hertzler. I could go for that. That would be awesome. So if you want to pick up this book, you know, I think I've had this book in both forms, Matthew. I, I know I had the paperback. I remember buying the paperback in the bookstore when it came out. And then I also have the Audible version here as well. And if you want to pick it up yourself and learn the universe's fastest growing language, as the cover says, you can do that, as I said, absolutely free just for trying Audible. And all you need to do is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up and you'll get a 30-day trial. And if at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep this book. That's yours. But if you love podcasts and you love reading, you're going to love Audible. If you're already getting your audiobooks from another source, or maybe you're picking them up in the bookstore on CD, I don't know if anyone does that anymore. I've certainly got plenty of CDs, though, in a case over here with with long books like Ben Bova's Jupiter, which I think is 37 discs, something like that. Oh, <laughs> it's better, better to get them from Audible. So go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and try it today. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Well, Chris, we're really excited tonight. Keith DeCandido is back in the Star Trek universe with his new translation of the Klingon Art of War. Uh, he's no stranger to Klingons, obviously, with his popular IKS Gorkin series and the intrepid Captain Clagg. And he's here to talk with us tonight about the Klingon Art of War. Crad, it is so good to have you back in Treklet and back on Literary Treks. Oh, happy to be here. Yeah, welcome. We're so glad you're here. So, you have this brand new translation of the Klingon Or of War. Tell me just how that came about, you know, putting this book together and, and where it really, the, the idea stemmed from for you. Uh, it actually uh, didn't stem with me. It, uh, the original concept came from uh, John Van Sitters. John okay. is the person at CBS, in CBS's licensing department who approves all of, a lot of the ancillary merchandise. He approves mm -hmm. all the novels. He also approves things like, you know, T-shirts and, and toys and things. But, uh, but he's the guy who's responsible for approving all of the fiction. He actually came up with this idea himself, and he brought it to Becker and Meyer. Becker and Meyer are the book packagers who have been responsible for a lot of the really cool reference-type books that have come out mm -hmm. the last few years. Um, the Federation, the first 150 years that David Goodman yes. did. Uh, Larry Nemechek's Stellar Tartography book. The How to Speak Klingon book that had that cute little audio doodad in the lower right-hand corner. Oh, yeah. Um, the Klingon Christmas Carol that Paul Ruditis did. All of that was Becker and Meyer. And um, John went to them with that, and between them, he and my editor, Ben Grossblatt, were the ones who developed the basic notion of the Klingon Art of War. What they came up with was, well, the title, obviously, <laughs> and, uh, and they came up with the Ten Precepts. And then they came to me and said, hey, how'd you like to write this book? And not being an idiot, I said yes. <laughs> oh, definitely. Uh, you know, because I've as 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 you mentioned, I've I've done you know a little bit with Klingons over the years, tiny bit, small passing interest in them. And, yeah. Uh, no, I love Klingons. I've 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 been a fan of Klingons since I was young and impressionable, and was completely blown away by Michael Ansara's performances, Kang and Day of the Dub. Oh yeah. Okay. That's yes. pretty much what did me in. And uh, since then, I've been an, an unabashed Klingon file. And, uh, you know, I've written a great deal of fiction that, that mm -hmm. focuses on the Klingons. And so it was, it was a wonderful opportunity for me to, 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 to do this. And so I fleshed it out. 
you know, like I said, we started with the 10 precepts and then I went and established a great deal more about it, including, um, I, I set it up the same way that a lot of editions of Sun Tzu's The Art of War are mm -hmm. today. Uh, we get a lot of, you know, because the actual text is fairly short, so right. there is usually some kind of modern commentary that goes along with it uh, that brings in some, you know, more modern examples of, of Sun Tzu's various precepts. And I did mm -hmm. the same thing here. The, the, the conceit of the book is the Klingon Art of War, which in Klingon is Kessa, was originally published in scroll form not too long after uh, Kalis's ascension slash death slash whatever, mm -hmm. uh, and also after the Herc invasion. Right. It was, also, it was both a song, where the song was just listing the ten precepts, and uh, a text Again, it was originally published as a scroll form and then later as a codex book, and now both in print and electronic form in the 24th century. And this particular edition of it has an introduction and afterward and modern commentary by a 24th century Klingon novelist named Karatak, uh, who's actually was somebody who was mentioned in a second season in the Next Generation episode in The Measure of a Man when, when Data resigned. Oh, yeah. Uh, Worf gave him a gift of, of a novel yes. by a guy named Karatak, about whom we know precisely that he wrote one novel. <laughs> and that's it. I actually, I, I, I came up with a couple of other titles that he published in one of the, the Gorkhan books. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I decided, well, why not? He's, you know, we've already got this author. Let's, let's use him and yeah, definitely. Uh, give him you know, give him a little extra backstory and have him provide modern commentary. This way, there are examples from the time of Kalis that illustrate each of the precepts involving Kalis, involving Kalis's mate, Kalis's family, mm -hmm. Kalis's friends, people Kalis encountered over the years and such, and and going into the origins of, of things like the first Batleth and, and the Makbara, and I, I, I got my John M. Ford on and also included uh, the game of Klinja, which John M. Ford introduced in the, the novel The Final Reflection, and, um, and some other stuff as well. And then in addition to that, the modern commentary includes stuff that's more recent. Right. Uh, right. Both things that are both familiar and not, but things that the modern Klingon would understand. There are anecdotes involving characters we know, like Kor and Kang and Koloth and Worf and Martok and, and so on. Uh, Gowron, Chang, mm -hmm. all those guys. But And there's also... New uh, new examples of stuff from other Klingons, both ones we've seen before and ones I made up for the book. Um, I I got to come up with all sorts of interesting things, including explaining where the where the term Dahar Master comes from and who the first Dahar Master was. I liked that a lot. Very cool. And uh, how the, the system of emperors worked in in the old empire and how things changed eventually to a chancellor and certain bits of upheaval in Klingon history and all sorts of fun stuff. I made a conscious effort in particular with. Um, because uh, I didn't want to just rehash stuff we'd seen on screen before. There, some of that is there. Like one of the one of the examples is there's an entire chapter where where you're always the precept is that you always face your enemy in the end. I had Karatak give several examples of leaders of the Klingon Empire, both emperors and chancellors, who were killed by someone who did not show his or her face. Two of the examples I chose. One obviously was Kimpek, um, who we saw. Uh, killed by poison on Next Generation, mm -hmm. and also Gorkhan, who was right. killed by, you know, two Starfleet security officers wearing big ass helmets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that you know, we get we get things that we've seen before, like the events of Star Trek Six and the events of Reunion. 
and, and there are some events in Deep Space Nine that are referred to as well. But I also came up with new stories for some of these people, like, for example, uh, with Korkang and Koloff in particular. These guys lived for, like, well over 100 years. Uh, they had very long lives. So while it was tempting to include the stuff we know, you know, like their encounters with Kirk in the original series or, um, you know, Kang's encounter with Sulu in, in Voyager's flashback or... Right the story that Core told about, you know, fighting Tanag at Korma Pats or the Albino. I, I didn't want to do that. So I came up with new stories for all three of them. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think that helps a lot because it, it, it gives you a freshness to the book so yeah. you don't feel like, oh, I've just heard this before, you know. Um, because it's so common you know. to fall back on those, like every Klingon story is like somehow referencing those events that we know. Yeah, which is why I made an effort to do to mix it up. I mean, there is some stuff we know there because I don't want to ignore it completely. You know, particularly sure. something like you know the assassination of Gorkhan or of Kimpek, that's some serious stuff. Or you know the Dominion War, which in you know Karatok's writing from roughly twenty three eighty four eighty five, basically around the same time as the Fall miniseries. Okay. Okay. Or just before it, maybe, because uh, I don't. I don't. I mean, uh, there, there's there's a there's a passing reference to President Nanbako, and there's a reference to the Typhon Pact, and right, and, yes, you know, the, and the Borg invasion um, from Destiny, all that, you know. It, there's reference. You know, I'm keeping up. It, it's as current as possible within the current mm-hmm. uh, 24th century continuity, which I also thought was important to do. You know, I wanted I wanted to not just refer to um, the stuff on screen. I wanted to make use of the the large tapestry of material that. Uh, me and various other writers have come up with over the years. Mm-hmm. I actually borrowed quite a bit, uh, bits and pieces here and there from Michael Jan Friedman's uh, novel Kalis as well. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, man, I can't, oh, it's been so long since I've read that book. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, that's that was one something I was wondering too. You know, you have all of these stories, like you said, you have some that come from what we've seen on screen. I, I knew that there were some that you made up. All that. So, what was it? What was it like doing the research for this? Where did you get? I feel like I need an annotated version of this so that I could get <laughs> where every single thing is coming right. from because I know there's a lot packed in here. Yeah. Oh, well, like it's it's all mixed up. There's there's a little of everything, you know. Um, and some of it I I based on existing history. Some of it, you know, where I would I would take you know like something from the Roman Empire or or, or from from you know Chinese or Japanese history and and rework it, it translate it into Klingon so to speak and some of it was just stuff you know I made up I'm a writer this is you know making, yeah. making stuff yeah. up is kind of what I do so. <laughs> so so you have to be quite familiar with world history in order to make those connections in the first place to some extent yeah I mean it, yeah. it's it's something I'm I'm interested in well and that led me to this because I kind of saw some allusions um in in a, in a few places especially when you were just talking about the the art of war itself and then um the the other book that's kind of like a commentary on that and it added to which I don't know how to say it in Klingon I don't want to butcher it um so Keith what, tell everybody what that's called Oh the Pakmat yeah. yeah there we go okay so I was the, close. the sacred the sacred texts yes 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 so I was wondering what your, you, you know, just pulling it, this is obviously kind of a, a, an almost sacred, if not sacred work for the Klingons, you know, as, as the, the Vulcans have, you talked about the writing of the Sirach, you know, you, you use the, the allusion to, to Christianity. So what were some of the real world sacred texts that you kind of drew from to, to, to use uh, here with the Klingon art of war? 
in, in some of the other Klingon texts? Um, I, well, I didn't go into what's specifically in the Klingon sacred text as such. That would, that would be a different book. But, um, I, I mean, I was, I was influenced to some extent, certainly by, uh, you know, religious studies I've done over the years. I, I went to, uh, uh, Fordham University, which is run by Jesuits. So I got okay. all sorts of entertaining mm-hmm. theology classes, yes. um, including one that was actually, that, that inspired one of the appendices. Uh, I took a class that was called The Search for the Historical Jesus, and that's what inspired me to write the essay, mm-hmm. the, the appendix in the back, that's The Search for the Historical Calus, the same sort right. of trying to mm-hmm. separate the myth from the history. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's there's no one particular thing. I, I, you know, I try to pay attention to everything, you know? Um, I, I was I was pulling stuff from from studies of, of history, from studies of religion, more more history than religion, simply because, you know, as, as I put in that appendix, the the, the the weird thing about most Star Trek religions that we see is that they tend to be based in something corporeal. You know, the, the Bajorans worship the prophets, but the prophets are actually there. Um, right. You know, the, the, the Klingons don't really, they, they, they supposedly killed their gods, and the, the closest they come to a divine figure is Kalos, who is a historical personage. You know, Vulcans don't actually worship as such, but they do revere Surak, another historical personage. Um, and, uh, you know, even, even, you know, some Earth religions, we actually get to see that the Greek gods were actually aliens. I thought of the the Talmud by, uh, you know, in Jewish studies, um, being a commentary yeah. on the, the Pentateuch. And, and so, um, yeah. you know, that, that being some of the things that you would reference for Klingons and, and them having this, this, uh, spiritual commentary on, you know, um, the, the art of war. And, and so, uh, it just, I'd seeing those kind of small illusions was really interesting uh, pulling from the real world to create, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the world of, of Star Trek, and I, pro- I, I, I'm, I was influenced certainly to some extent by by rabbinical commentary in general. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, that's yeah, that's always fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, those guys know how to have party right there. Oh yeah, and they know how to, and they know how to have an argument. More to the point, yes, so, they do. <laughs> one of one of one of my best friends actually was a was a rabbi. He he unfortunately died seven years ago, but um, uh, he he and I used to have all sorts of entertaining discussions about various issues relating to. The Old Testament to you know the 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 Talmud the the the, uh, the Kabbalah you know all sorts of stuff, and I'm an agnostic too, so this is you know my my interest yeah. is purely academic, but uh, definitely. Well, um, you know, writing this as opposed to say a straight on novel, I mean, there's a lot of story in here, but it it kind of also feels a little bit like you know quote unquote historical fiction of the of the Klingon people you know you're creating a, a history it, i i've been i've been joking that this is my first self help book um, yeah <laughs> it it cuz it really felt like that's what i was writing when i was writing it uh, i mean it's a philosophy text really more more than anything else uh it's so it's 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 nonfiction within the fictional star trek universe and it was a hell of a challenge i i it was a lot harder than i thought it was going to be um, because I wasn't telling a story. I was telling a bunch of individual stories, but there needed to be a sense of, you know, cohesiveness to those stories. Uh, and it was it was a huge challenge. It was it was tremendous fun and, and, you know, scary at times. And, you know, I was ripping my hair out at other points. But um, but I was very pleased with the result. And it was it it was a really nice challenge for me um, to, to write in a different mode 
which is something I've I've done now twice in the last year because I also I also wrote my first role playing game adventure. I did a oh okay uh, an RPG adventure for the Firefly role playing game that oh, yes. Productions is doing. Mm-hmm. I've got one coming out. It's called Merciless, which should be out actually fairly soon. And um, I've never written. I've, I've, God knows I've played role playing games, and I've certainly written plenty of uh, fiction based on games, but mm-hmm. I've never actually written an RPG adventure before, and it's really it's a completely different mindset because you you have to consider all the possibilities and account for them. Um, and you really, it's much higher on plot than characterization, which is not what I'm used to. Um, I'm, I'm much more of a characterization guy and, and, you know, letting the plot play out as it will. But um, I had to focus entirely on plot for that. But it was, uh, I'm glad I did it, because now I know I can. <laughs> Definitely. And maybe I'll get to do it again someday. Walking through each precept there, uh, you know, you, you have a bunch of different stories and it, it almost felt like they're, you know, they're historical stories, but they also kind of feel a little bit like parables and then you would have a commentary. So kind of walk me through just creating one of those, uh, you know, how would you, you know, did you create a spreadsheet so you could try to keep oh God, which no. story with <laughs> where, or, uh, how, how did, how did you work that? I think it's adorable that you think I was that organized. Well, we, we've, we've heard all about. David Max, a beautiful mind wall from the fall. Oh yeah, yeah no, Dave, Dave's Dave's <laughs> nuts. Um, Dave's one of my best friends, so I can say that he's nuts. Uh, and yeah, he's nuts. Um, and way more organized <laughs> than than most, you know, normal humans. Um, no, I I in each case, I I, I approached each section differently because with with the original text, I was thinking in much more in terms of the writing. Um, shorter paragraphs, simpler declarations, the idea that the, the, the language would have been less evolved, for lack of a better word. So, every, every you know, uh, shorter paragraphs, shorter sentences, more basic declarations of stuff. Um, Karatok's commentary had more complex sentences, longer paragraphs, slightly more flowery language. I mean, all the language is flowery to some extent, especially with Klingons, we're always, you know, declaring things and... and... Yes. Right. And then uh, a lot of the stuff, I mean, I, I had to create an outline first because, I mean, that's true of every every piece of tie-in fiction of any sort. You have to start with an outline, and that has to be approved. So um, when I was outlining it, I was coming up with the basic stories that I that I told uh, and, and each of the anecdotes and such. And sometimes something would run short, so I'd come up with another one as I'm writing. Um, and some of them I was very uh, vague about. Uh, in the outline, and then I had to uh, expand on it. But uh, <laughs> it was it, it, it was it was a lot of it was organized at the outline stage out of necessity because that had to be approved. Okay. So once that was done, then it was just a matter of fleshing out what I'd come up with at that stage. No, that makes a lot of sense. So so working through too, you said that you didn't get to come up with the precepts that they had already had those for you. Um, did, where did those come from? Is that something that was written, you know, for a show once or, or did they make those up themselves as well? Uh, to the best, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, it was something that either John or Ben or both of them came up with together. Okay. I don't know. Like I said, I, when I was brought into the project, those 10 precepts were already there. Did you have any ideas of your own that weren't listed in those 10 that, that you would have put in there if you were coming up with them yourself? Um, it, it, it. I didn't because it simply seemed to cover most of the high points of what uh, yeah. Klingons would consider important under these circumstances. I might have phrased some of them a little differently, but I, I didn't see any need to mess about with it. 
You didn't have you didn't want to have like tell the story of the whole candle ceremony from the bonding and maybe there was a contact between Klingons and Vulcans in the distant past and that's why eh. they love their candles now. Not particularly, not necessarily. <laughs> the Vulcans do love them some candles. They sure do. Um, I was actually just watching. I I I I've been doing a, a Deep Space Nine rewatch for Tor.com. Oh yeah. And this week, uh, as as we record this anyway, this week I was doing. Uh, I got to Trials and Tribulations, so I decided yeah. since ah, that was yes. for the 30th anniversary of Star Trek, I decided to do a whole thing where I not only rewatched Trials and Tribulations, but also The Trouble with Tribbles, as well as Voyager's uh, contribution to the 30th anniversary, the episode Flashback. Mm-hmm. And and of course, I'm watching it, and there's the bit where Tuvok is, is in his quarters meditating, and I'm watching it with my fiance. and the first thing she said was, they're trapped 70,000 light years from home. Where the hell did he get all the candles? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> There were a lot of candles in that room, too. So it's a week worth of uh, tr- uh, replicator rations right there. Yeah. I mean, you know, he probably packed a bunch, but still. You know, we're, we're, we're three years in at this point, you know? He did get to the ship via the Maquis ship, so apparently when they rescued them from the Maquis ship before oh, it exploded, right. they also yeah. got all of his candles off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he may, he, may have had, he may have actually already had quarters on the ship with his stuff That's in true. storage or yeah. something. Because he was already assigned... Voyagers. So, if you want to make a lot of latinum in the 24th century, or in, just in Star Trek in general, you need to be a candle maker on either Kronos <laughs> or Vulcan. Yes, <laughs> lots, lots of coin to be made on that one. But yeah, the uh, I, I like I said, the the the, the ten they came up with, I thought worked fine. Um, the the I actually the only concern I had, I basically lampshaded. Strike quickly or strike not, and leave nothing until tomorrow are actually fairly similar to each other. So I had Karatok face that one head on by basically saying, "Yes, it's possible to interpret it that way, but there's also a way to not interpret it that way." And here's how. Yeah, and I thought that what was interesting about this is that it kind of lays the basis for what we see. You know, obviously the idea of what it means to be a Klingon and what honor actually means for a Klingon, and then. You know, so reading this, I thought it was interesting because then you could watch those episodes where Klingons are featured and the idea of honor is just being thrown about. And, you know, Worf even mentions once in Deep Space Nine, you know, uh, at, at the end when he's talking to Esri Dax when they're in prison, he says, uh, I, maybe I use that word too much. And how Klingons in general just use that word all the time. And, and sometimes you just feel like, I, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> and, and yet this well, is, it's, you know, you get to the basis here and it makes sense. You know, it's so important for them. But then you kind of see how it's extrapolated and kind of taken out of context and moved around. And, and Well, it's a really nebulous concept. It's not really something you can quantify or qualify, which is, you know... It, I've actually, you know, they, well, you know, a Klingon wouldn't behave that way. Sure they would. Klingons behave any kind of way they want to. They're people. And some of them are going to be more honorable than others if, um, you know, they wouldn't need to pay attention. to If everyone, if every Klingon was honorable naturally, they wouldn't need Kalos' teachings in the first place. Right. And, and it's something that is very nebulous um, and difficult to quantify and therefore easy to abuse or misunderstand, which, of course, is, you know, and one, one of the things I always really liked was the uh, there, there were two, two things in particular. One was just in general involving the character of Worf. Because he was raised outside the Empire, he got to be the ideal Klingon because he didn't have to deal with the 
day-to-day reality of life. Right. He didn't have to deal with, you know, the politics and the compromises that that you would have to uh, make. You know, he could afford to be an ideal Klingon because he didn't actually live in the Empire. The other um, one is, is I'm thinking in particular of the of the DS9 episode, The House of Quark, where there's all these different conditions that have to be met. Did did Quark actually kill him in battle? Well, then he died an honorable death, and you know this will happen. On the other hand, if he was drunk and he fell on Quark's knife, it was a dishonorable death, and something else will happen. And on the face of it, it's ridiculous. He's dead no matter what. Right. On the other hand, this isn't any different from you know lots of different human customs that we have. You know, if somebody is shot during a war, then they died a hero. If he's shot, you know, walking down the street, then he's a victim. The two acts are not inherently dissimilar, but how people respond to it differs. Um, you know, for that matter, the difference between you know an accident and suicide. So the person who's dead, it doesn't matter; they're dead either way. But in terms of the consequences of what happens, because there are societal norms that dictate how we react, it makes a difference to the people left behind. And right. you know, Klingons are the same way. It's just a slightly you know different way of doing it. Well, and this is something that kind of led me thinking in this direction, you know, getting to this point and kind of watching the Klingons, you know, grow up in this book, you know, their history and, and how they came to, to be a power in the, the quadrant. I was, I was just wondered, you know, they're this warrior race that really values battle and, and honor and all these things. And yet they, they seem to have the ability to also create all this technology, but nobody cares about the technology. Like well, they kind okay. of, they're not, the thing is they're not, they're not really a warrior culture. Cause that isn't tenable. Um, right. what they are is a culture where the, uh, uh, class-based culture where the highest class is the warrior class. They didn't spell that out as often as perhaps they should. Although actually mm-hmm. enterprise of all places did a better job of it. They do. In, yeah. uh, in that episode judgment, but we also saw yes. it even in, um, uh, the last core episode, uh, Once More Under the Breach, the, the the notion is that, I mean, there are there have to be Klingon engineers. Right. This is a major interstellar power with spaceships that work. <laughs> right. You know, somebody's got to build the damn things. And um, it's just that they're not, they don't have the same rank and culture. And because of, of the peculiarities of Star Trek, and uh, we only see the military and the politicians who are of the warrior class. So, um, you know, we get a skewed view of the Klingons of necessity because of the way the show is structured. Well, and even even just the way that um, their whole society is as well. I mean, with the Klingon art of war and the way that they kind of look at things, that's what they see as the kind of highest form of being, is being a warrior, at least it seems like, from their, you know, their quote-unquote religious texts and everything. So I, just, I was just thinking to myself, how does this society actually function? And it makes me really want to just kind of see a little bit more, whether it's, you know, in a novel or, you know, in a future show or whatever, what actual Klingon society is more like. Well, that's what mm-hmm. I tried to do in so. uh, the no- a novel I did that came out in 2008, was it? Uh, a Burning House. Yes, 2008. It was under the under the title of Klingon Empire, it was, it was, for all intents and purposes, the fourth IKS Gorkhan book, but we rebranded it because the third IKS Gorkhan book didn't sell very well. And uh, uh, it was the, the, the Gorkhan crew coming home for shore leave 
And basically, while the ship was being repaired, they were all going off to different places. So we got to see different aspects of Klingon life. We, we got to see, you know, the halls of power and the military and such that we always do. And we got a look inside Imperial Intelligence as well. But we also got to look at a Klingon slum. We got to look at a Klingon farm. We got to look mm-hmm. at a Klingon opera company. Um, God help us, a Klingon medical conference, which was pretty much a disaster on every possible front. And uh, <laughs> so uh, the object of that novel was specifically to show the different aspects of Klingon life. In particular, the part the part I had the most fun with and the part I was most proud of in that book is uh, three members of uh, the 15th Squad, which is a, a squad of five soldiers who we followed throughout the various books as so, to sort of represent the enlisted ground troops on the ship. Uh, three members of the 15th go to one of those three's home, which is on a farming world, and they basically go back to the farm, which where there's huge number of people. He's got a large family, you know, who are and, and their neighbors and such who are all farmers. And getting a look at that end of Klingon life, these characters are still very obviously Klingons. They, they act like Klingons, they behave like Klingons. But their view on life is different from what we usually see from the people who serve in the Defense Force, or for the people on the High Council. Um... You know, because they're focused on more mundane matters. They're, they're, they, they need to make sure they have food in their belly. Um, you know, so their, their concerns are different from what we normally see from somebody like a Kor or a Worf or a Martok or a Gowron. So that, that was part of the point of the book, was to show, you know, how the other half lives. Or the other, you know, several different segments live. Um, you know, what are, what are the poor like? And, and, you know, what, what, what does a Klingon slum look like? Uh, what is, what is, what exactly are, who, who performs in the opera? You know, stuff like that. Well, and that's something that I always liked in Deep Space Nine when they introduced us to the character of Martok. And, and he is a warrior, but he's also somebody who comes from the Cathololans. You know, he's yeah. somebody who doesn't have this kind of warrior class, any kind of royal blood. There's nothing special about him. He's just a, a run-of-the-mill Klingon who kind of pulls himself up by his own bootstraps and makes something of himself. And uh, that's what I thought, to me, he was always the ultimate Klingon because he was the one who had had really lived the life of what it meant to be a Klingon and and made something of himself, whereas, you know, some of these other Klingons we'd always seen, they had been kind of given power, they had had, you know, because of their family or whatnot, and he's somebody who had to actually make himself and... It, to me, it was almost like, okay, this is what Kalos would, would say, this is a Klingon. This one, he knows what honor means because he's had to fight for it, for real, you know, to make it of himself. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you really, I think, kind of see that. When I was reading this book, I was thinking that, you know, Martok is a really good representation of of these principles uh, of the Klingon art of war and really putting them to play. Um without any, you know, pomp and circumstance, he just lives the life, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I thought I thought was really cool to see. I, I've always had fun writing Martok. I, I got to write him in um, a couple in, in the various Gorkhan books, as well as the next gen novel, Time for War, Time for Peace, uh, in Articles of the Federation, in um, uh, Singular Destiny, and I've never not had fun writing him. Yes, J.G. Uh, Hertzler gave him such a distinctive voice. Yes. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, a, and a manner of speaking, and he's just, I love the fact that he really, 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 really does not want this job. Right. Um, and, 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 and he's, it's a perfect example of the adage that, you know, the person who you best want to rule your country is the person who least wants it. 
you know, you know most, mo- most of the people you think would make good politicians are the ones who were smart enough never to get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Martok only did it because basically Worf kind of, you know, shoved him into it unwillingly. Um, but, uh, but, that, but that's what makes him, you know, such a, such a great leader uh, is, is the fact that he, he has that, he has that innate warriorness about him, you know, and, and it doesn't come because he was born, and, and that's exactly it. He didn't, he wasn't born to a noble house. He, he's a warrior because he basically kicked his way forward and forced people to notice that he was a warrior, um, which makes it, you know, in a sense, more pure. Yeah, I, I think that that was what I was definitely driving at there. Yeah. You know, he, there is a, there is, like, he's the essence of Klingon, you mm-hmm. know, um, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a brand new fragrance for Worf. Uh, it smells like it smells like lilac and a you know a hint of an earthy peat moss. Smell, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, goodness. Well, and you know, I, I liked what you said too about um, the, the difference between say Worf and another Klingon. You know, Worf is somebody who can kind of be this kind of Klingon perfection because he doesn't have to live in the world. I always kind of felt like TNG was like that. They they create the utopia, but they just kind of hop from place to place, so they don't really live in the actual utopia and what right. it's like. Whereas Deep Space Nine kind of plops you in the middle of the utopia and says, "Good luck." Um, <laughs> and so that that kind of difference between say like a uh, a Martok and a Worf, they they really yeah. are, are those differences, and so that's really cool. Well, Keith, I was wondering, you know, okay, so we got Klingon Art of War from you. Is anything else going to be coming up from you, Star Trek wise, anytime soon? Uh, nothing currently. Um, a lot's going to depend on how well this book does. Uh, okay. If, if, well, Chris and I bought it, so I think. Yep. Well, thank you. Um, that's that's <laughs> two. Um, actually, it's it, it, from, from just. I mean, the, the purely anecdotal evidence has been pretty good so far. I've done. I've done a uh, couple book signings, and I. Okay. I brought. Um, I brought nine copies to uh, Trek Tracks Atlanta. At the end of April, which are actually preview copies, the book hadn't been released yet. Um, but I, I brought uh, nine copies down uh, to the convention, and by 10 p.m. on Friday, I had sold all of them. Oh, great! Um, so so the was blood was still fresh on those. Yeah, yeah. All right. And and I did a signing just this past weekend in um, at the Enigma Bookstore here in New York. Uh, it was myself, as along with David Mack and Aaron Rosenberg. Oh, very nice. Oh, wow. I had, a, I had a great time. Uh, did, did a wonderful appearance at Enigma, and uh, all the copies they had brought were gone as well. Oh, great! That's awesome. So, I mean, I have no idea if this translates to the rest of the world, but uh, we shall see. But if it does well, then there's a better chance of you seeing more Trek for me in the future. There's a bunch of different things that could be done with with the various species. It's it's uh, you know the, the once you get it, it's harder once you get past the Klingons and the Vulcans because those are the two that that have the biggest interest among the broadest range of Star Trek fans. Yeah. Having said that, you know, there's 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 lots of possibilities there. So, we'll see what happens. I you know, I'd love to do more Trek work. Yeah, you know, I mean, right now I'm very I'm having a great time doing the rewatch. Um that's twice a week on tour.com and that's, you know, keeping me busy. Um I'm now in the 5th season, very beginning of the 5th season. Ah, good season to be in. Well, I just I just I just finished the 4th season, which was pretty awesome. Yes, that is a good season too. And that show really started to hit on all cylinders. Yeah. 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 And uh there's there's a lot of uh a lot of really good stuff in, in there. In fact, honestly, there were only a couple real duds in the season. 
and and only one that I thought was really dreadful, um, which is not the one everyone thinks. Usually people are, oh, well, you hated the Muse, right? I actually kind of liked the Muse. Not, God knows, the Jake plot. That was terrible. But um, <laughs> the, the Loaxana plot was actually not that bad. Yeah, we, we both think that Loaxana is quite good on DS9 in her appearance. Yeah, well, she she and Rene Aubergenois really clicked nicely. Yes. Mm-hmm. I liked the, the rapport the two of them had. You know, because she she brought out a side of Odo that we had never seen before, and we yeah. got to see later on. Um, you know, especially once once his his and Kira's relationship deepened. But I think the the only reason the reason he got that far was at least in part because of her. Um, and and I liked I liked the effect that she had on him. And um, you know, in particular, there was there was one wonderful bit where. They're playing basically hide and seek in his quarters, where she has to figure out what it is he's changed right. as, mm-hmm. and she gives up. And he, it turns out he was being basically the surface of the the monkey bars he had in the middle of the quarters, and he coalesces into his humanoid form on top of the monkey bars. It just has this wonderful smile on his face, you know. It's like ta-da, and like I said, that's a side we don't see about it very often, and it's a fun one. And uh, I really. You know, appreciated that. No, the music. So for that reason, the music actually wasn't that bad. The one I hate is Rules of Engagement. I hate that episode so much. Yeah, I'm not um, fun of that one. That I was think. that was the one where where Worf was accused of of blowing up a civilian ship in the midst yeah. of a, of a battle. Yeah, that one's got a lot of plot issues when you really sit down and start thinking about it. Nothing in that episode should have actually happened. <laughs> um, the, the starting with there's no basis for an extradition. The Klingons pulled out of the treaty. Yeah. So there's and and which wouldn't be so bad except right there in the episode Chapak the the Klingon lawyer says we're not in the treaty anymore. So it's like it's not like they missed that fact. It's right there in the script and yet they're still having a hearing and putting Worf in a holding cell. Come on. Right. It just felt like Worf is on the show now. We've got to do something like this with him. Yeah. It's just well, I mean, there. That yeah. could work. I mean it worked with the sort of Kalis goodness knows. Um, and and he worked. There were a bunch of B plots that he worked quite nicely in. Um, I particularly liked uh, him in Bar Association when he decides to live on the Defiant. Yes, I thought that was yeah, a really yeah. nice. That was that was an interesting choice. It, it, it certainly you wouldn't expect to compare Worf and Rom all that often, but they both do the same thing in the episode. They both realize the situation they're in isn't tenable, and so they change the situation. You know, they both have the same response to. You know, a, a situation that they just simply can't deal with anymore, and so they they're both proactive and say, "Screw this! I'm doing something different." Um, you know, the the actually that that was another thing in the fourth season. The character of Rom really came into his own uh, in that season as well. I thought, mm-hmm. yeah, he really does. Ah, such a good show. It's wonderful. It's been a lot of fun. It, some of it, you know, it, it's been interesting both with the Next Generation rewatch that I did and, and the DS9 rewatch. Watching it all straight through like this, there are some episodes that I almost don't need to rewatch. I've seen them so often, I've got them memorized. Um, and there are others where I barely remember any of them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as, as one example on DS9, there was the one with the terraformer, um, uh, Second Sight, where, yeah. where Cisco yes. falls in love with the projection of yes. the terraformer's wife, yes. uh, right. which is a horrible episode. But and, and <laughs> I didn't even remember it. In fact, I remembered it so little that when I was editing the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series, which the the, the monthly ebook series that I edited from 2000 to 2007, uh, Andy Mangles and Mike Martin did a, a piece on terraforming called Ishtar Rising, 
where it was a, 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 a project to terraform Venus, and the guy in charge of it created a bunch of different terraformers on the holodeck from from history, including like Carl Sagan, uh, you know, basically the various scientists. Carl Sagan was one of them, and Gideon Sayetic from the Second Sight episode was in there. And they put in the name Sayetic, and my first comment to Mike was, this sounds like a Vulcan name. Are you sure this guy's in the Vulcan? And Mike's like, no, he was in a DS9 episode. I'm like, <laughs> really? You sure? So I watched the episode and I guess, oh yeah, there you go. And Richard Kiley was great. I mean, the episode was terrible, but it was, it was fun watching Richard Kiley. And the episode was so memorable that when I did the rewatch last year of that episode, I forgot it again. <laughs> I totally forgot every detail of that episode. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's it's... It's been interesting, and also watching them, jam-watching them like this, which is an even more intense experience than when I watched it the first time, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's all sorts of things I'm noticing that I didn't notice before. With Next Gen in particular, uh, I've gotten a much greater appreciation for Jonathan Frake's acting skills, um, which mm -hmm. are much better than he's generally given credit for, especially mm -hmm. as the show wore on. Yeah, I Definitely. Agree. I mean, the first season, Jonathan Frakes, Marina Sirtis, and Michael Dorn were all awful. But they all improved tremendously as the show went on. Um, how much of it was just, you know, practice? How much of it was, you know, being around guys like Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner every day? I don't know. But they really, all three of them upped their game tremendously. And Frakes in particular did some really good work. I'm thinking in particular of, like, Frame of Mind. Um, yeah. And, and a couple of others where he really, he really did well. And the other is, is I've come to really hate the character of Jordi LaForge. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Um, he 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 was a creep. <laughs> he he. There there were two separate occasions where he he, you know, looked at computer records of somebody he shouldn't have, uh, and then used it as an excuse to start flirting with them. In the second case, it wasn't as bad as it could have been because he thought she was dead. That was Aquiel. Mm -hmm. So you know, reading you know, and, and but then she turns up alive, and then it gets all creepy again, and then you've got the holy Abrams thing, which is just yeah. Um, <laughs> Which, and and it wouldn't bother yeah. me so much except the episode then goes and takes his side rather than hers when he's been awful. Um, yes. He's, he's violated her, her, her privacy and, and, and then used his holographic blow-up doll to flirt with her better. And then he starts getting self-righteous about it when she confronts him with it. And that's just like, no! <laughs> so yeah, so I've, I've learned to hate Jordy LaForge and like Jonathan Frakes. So that, that was what I got out of the TNG one. And, and DS9, there's been less obvious stuff of that, but in general... Um, you know, watching the progression in a more compressed time frame like that is really fascinating. Yeah, it really um, is. You know, watching how, you know, so many of the characters' relationships changed and their personalities changed. And some of them didn't change at all, which is fine. I mean, Garrick is basically the same guy at the end of the show that he was at the beginning mm -hmm. of the show. You know, he was, he was more disposed toward the main crew, but that was, you know, due to the necessity of his situation more than anything. And, and Kira was pretty much the same person at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but since that person was awesome, it's okay. But but you know watching like Bashir and uh, Nog and Odo, you know how they changed and grew. Um, you know how how Jedzia changed as well. You know she started out as a sort of serene above it all thing, and then became much more interesting in the second season. Watching the progress has been tremendous fun. I'm really really enjoying this. So. And they pay me, which helps. That is awesome. So. Hopefully, we'll get more Star Trek from you because people will be buying the Klingon Art of War. Um, what else is next for you? And then, of course, where can people find you online? 
Um, stuff I got coming out. There's a in addition to the Klingon Art of War. There's a new anthology out that I have a story in called uh, Badass Fairies. Uh, it's Elemental. It's the fourth Badass Fairies anthology. It's a great um, title. Yeah. Um, the the Badass Fairies anthologies have won multiple awards. They're tremendous fun. I actually, the story in the first one as well. And uh, the fourth one just came out from Dark Quest Books, and I've got an urban fantasy story in it set in Key West, Florida. It is one of several urban fantasy stories I have set in Key West, Florida, several of which can be found in a short story collection called Ragnarok and Roll, which was published by Plus One Press last fall. And I'm working on the next Precinct book, which is my fantasy police procedural series. So far, we put, we've put out Dragon Precinct, Unicorn Precinct, Goblin Precinct, Griffin Precinct, and the short story collection Tales from Dragon Precinct. My, my next one, which will be out later this year, will be Mermaid Precinct, which um, I'm working on now. Uh, I mentioned before the Firefly role-playing game that Margaret Weiss Productions has produced, has put out. Uh, one of the, there's going to be a module called Merciless, which I wrote. What else? Uh, in October, there's going to be uh, a short story anthology called Out of Tune, edited by Jonathan Mayberry. That's, all the stories in that one are inspired by various and sundry sea ballads, like the child ballads and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I, the same urban fantasy in Key West setting for the Badass Fairy story and for the Ragnarok and Roll stories, I did a story in that setting as well for uh, Out of Tune. That's going to be out from Journal Stone, uh, just in time for Halloween. And what else? I, oh! Um, uh, Sequart Publishing has put, out, has put together an essay collection called New, World, New Life and New Civilizations. It's a look at the history of Star Trek in comic book form. Oh, excellent. Oh, okay. That's awesome. It's a really cool collection of essays. It's got a great cover, too. We're going to debut it at the Shore Leave Convention in Maryland in the first weekend in August. A bunch of the people who have essays in it uh, will be there, including me. I did a piece on the Wildstorm comics that were published from 1999-2001. I had had a unique perspective on that because I actually wrote one of the Wildstorm comics, and it was... uh, that that was a good run we had there on that. The the some some interesting stuff. A lot of which has actually had an impact on the novel line. I mean, part of it was because s- several of the same people, you know, uh, myself, David Mack, uh, Anne Crispin, Howie Weinstein, you know, a bun- uh, bunch of people who have worked on Star Trek novels also worked on, on yeah. those comic books. We've done some of those here on the show. Was um, Divided We Stand the uh, the DS Nine one? Was that Wild? Divided Stand? We Fall. Yeah, the, Divided the one we that, Fall. Uh, yeah, yeah. David yeah, Mack and John Rodover. Did that one together? That yeah, that was um, that was actually one of the that was the only miniseries Wildstorm did that was never collected into a trade paperback. Um, huh. Yeah, John and Dave are very bitter about that. Actually, yeah, it's a good one too. It was a good yeah, one, yeah. I, I wish IDW. I mean, IDW's put a bunch of the um, the old Wildstorm ones out in trade paperback form. Uh, I was certainly happy because they they reprinted uh, Enemy Unseen, which has my miniseries Perchance to Dream in it. But uh, they haven't they haven't reprinted Divided We Fall yet, unfortunately. And there was another one-shot uh, called Enter the Wolves that A.C. Crispin and Howard Weinstein did, which was uh, a Spock story, a Spock and Sarek and McCoy story taking place during the Lost Era. It, it involves early contact with the Cardassians. Oh, interesting. It was a really good story. In a lot of ways, it was kind of part one of the trilogy for which the episode Sarek and the two-party unification were parts two and three. Okay. It, it, the Enter the Wolves, the, the comic book story, was basically how... The, it, Perrin made reference to it in Unification about how, you know, in, Cardass- early, in the early days of Cardassian context, Spock and Sarek disagreed. The comic book tells the story of that disagreement. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. And it, was, it was a really good story. It had some really nice art by Carlos Moda, too. And like I said, that sort of serves as the prequel to what we got on Next Generation with Sarek and then, and then Spock and Unification. 
but anyway, my essay is about the Wildstorm era. I've got a, a tie-in project that I spent the months of March and April working on. Um, it, it's all done and approved, uh, but it's going to officially be announced on the 27th or the 28th of May. I'm not sure which. There's going to be a big announcement, a big, you know, there's going to be a website devoted to it. It's going to be a, a major deal by the publisher, so I can't really talk about it yet because we really want to make a splash with this announcement. Uh, what I can say is that it is, it is a license I have never worked in before. Oh, okay. Um, so Excellent. It, it was a new one. In fact, I, I counted, it's my 25th different licensed universe. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I was kind of scary, scared by that, too. Um, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a book I had tremendous fun. And, and the process of writing this book has been ridiculously smooth. We went from me getting an email from the editor on February 5th saying, hey, want to write a book in this universe, to me having, that was on February 5th, by May 6th, we had uh, an approved manuscript. Wow. I've had projects happen that fast. I've had projects happen this smoothly. Rarely have they been the same project. <laughs> yeah, so that is fast. I, I, I've been really impressed with both the publisher and the licensor on that. And you know, keep keep an eye out on online on either the twenty seventh or the twenty eighth, which leads me nicely to answer the last part of your question, which is how to find me online. Best thing to do is go to decandido.net, which is my cheerfully retro website, by which I mean it looks like it was designed by somebody who learned HTML in nineteen ninety six, also because it was designed by somebody who learned HTML in nineteen ninety six to it me. Um, one of these days I'm going to upgrade it, but it, right now it serves as a, a clearinghouse for how to find me elsewhere online. From, from decandido.net, you can order all my current books, including the Klingon Art of War, uh, as well as all the Precinct books, the Cassie Zukov books, the, the QS Urban Fantasy I was talking about, as well as uh, my Leverage novel and some other stuff. It also is a gateway to um, my blog, my podcasts that I do. I'm involved with the Chronic Rift podcast, as well as my own podcast, Dead Kitchen Radio. Uh, links to the, to the rewatches, to my Twitter feed, to my Facebook page. Um, and to the various and sundry other things I'm involved with, including the band The Boogie Nights, uh, the Writers' Cabal Club known as The Liars' Club, uh, the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers, of which I'm a proud member, and other stuff like that. So if you go to decandido.net, that's how you can find me. I update the blog every day where at all possible, and certainly I, don't, I, don't, I very rarely let it go more than a day or two without updating with something on it. Um, I, I regularly post on Facebook, and I friend anybody. I don't care. So just send me a friend request, and I will accept it. And uh, and I and I, I tweet less often perhaps than I should, but I do. I, I am on Twitter as well, so you can follow me on any of those places. And on the twenty seventh and twenty eighth, trust me, I will be talking a great deal about this new project. So awesome! Well, we can't wait to see what it's going to be, and really appreciate. I can't wait you to be able to talk about. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's been making me nuts, but I but I totally understand that there's a reason why it's it, they're waiting for this particular yeah. period to launch, and it, and it's and it's going to be worth the wait. So good. Good. Looking forward to it. Well, thanks so much, Keith, for joining us for the show. Um, thanks, thanks for, for all me. your work yeah, on uh, Klingon Art of War. And hopefully, uh, again, like we said, it'll sell well and we can get more Star Trek from you. That would be great. Well, thanks so much, Keith, for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. No problem at all. Well, Matthew, I'm really glad Keith was able to join us today to talk about the Klingon Art of War. It's a really unique book. And as with the novels... Same goes for these reference and, and specialty type books for me as well. I just love hearing about how they were put together. Chris, I'm definitely with you with that. I think it's so cool to see uh, all of these kind of quote unquote nonfiction, but you know, fiction books coming out uh, with uh, Star Trek. They're nonfiction in universe, Matthew. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I, it, it just adds so much 
to Star Trek and, you know, getting the Federation first 150 years and then, of course, this. Uh, I just love it. I think it's really, really awesome that these publishers are putting so much faith in these Star Trek books and uh, really getting them out there for us to be able to enjoy. And so, yeah, go pick this up, especially if you want to see more uh, Keith in Star Trek. I'd love to have him back writing novels again. So um, I hope that that will happen because people go out and, and check this out. I wonder who's going to write the Vulcan art of candles. <laughs> you know, I I don't know. Um, uh, hmm, that would that, that's a good one, Chris. Maybe we can take that one up. The Vulcan art of candles. We'll just go through and watch every Vulcan episode and see yeah. exactly how they okay. use them. And we can do it. It may be a while though, because first we have to finish that other book that we're working on together, the Bajoran art of spring wine. That's true, as well as. Andorian fight scenes. Do (laughs) you? Don't you? Of course you do. (laughs) That's right. Well, it's been great talking about this today and talking to Keith, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network over the past week. So here's a quick look at other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Are we in a commentary? They're like, everything is fine. It's, there's nothing. Just come down. We have fried chicken. <laughs> it's good. Earl Grey. Picard's romances. You say it's not great, Philip, but what I think you mean is it's probably one of the most forgettable episodes <laughs> of the entire series. <laughs> the Ready Room. We're on you in war. That was, what, the... 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th episode of the original series, Lawrence Schneider, he invents the Romulans. That was the whole the whole genesis of it. And if they'd known that the Romulans might have been a recurring alien, they might not have given them those, you know, quote-unquote, expensive helmets. The Orb. We find out, and Quark finds out, as we're talking about how he reacts and sort of comes to terms with what his mother's doing. She's the woman behind the curtain, She's the person who is calling the shots at the highest level of Ferengi society. To the journey! Ultimate Season 5 Marathon. You could argue brother and sister, but maybe more like your favorite uncle, who you once had a sex dream about. I don't know. <laughs> so that explains persistence of vision. <laughs> yeah. Warp 5. Archer's Lost Loves. Not Dodge so much, it's just... He's unsure of himself in that in that regard. He can be a starship captain, but a guy in love? Mm, I don't know about that. Commentary, Trek stars. The TNG Companion. He secretly doesn't know every time he replies to me on Twitter. I let out, let out a little fan squeal on the other end. I play it cool, though. I play it cool, guys. Um, no, I'm, I'm the same exact way, but I don't play it cool. By little fan squeal, you mean <laughs> that sound Chekhov made. In the <laughs> Continuing mission. The Continuing mission audio drama. Our writer, David Raines, is a huge Lovecraft fan. And all of these Lovecraftian creatures are from outer space. And, you know, the Star Trek characters, they're always running into, you know, these godlike beings, but, you know, they're benevolent, well, they're not benevolent, but, you know, they speak English, and, you know, they look, look like William Campbell. And- Literary Treks. Serpents among the ruins. We'll always help Paris. <laughs> wow, you just destroyed one of my favorite lines from 
my favorite movie ever. Huh. We'll always have Iron Mike oh, Paris. God. All right. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find them pretty much everywhere you get your podcasts. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune. We're now on Spreaker and BlackBerry as well. We're also on Swill, which is like the Pandora of podcasts. And you can stream or download from our website, get the RSS feed, pop that into your favorite podcatcher as well. While you're over at iTunes, be sure to visit our artist page, and also you can get the Trekka Film Complete Master Feed now, which contains every episode of every show that we do and some special audio as well. That's available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and will be available in other places very soon. And if you enjoy the shows, please leave us a review and a star rating wherever you are. We would love to hear from you, and it also helps other people find the shows. If you'd like to send us your thoughts on the John Byrne comic that we talked about today, on the Klingon Art of War, or anything about Star Trek books and comics, you can do that in a number of ways. You can go to our website at trek.film slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also find us on Twitter under username trekfm. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We now have a community on Google+, so just check your G Plus community, search for trek.film and you'll find us there and also we have traditional forums on our website at trek.film slash forums now matthew when you're not practicing your klingon pronunciation where can people find you well chris you can find me on matt rushing zero two uh there on the twitter uh you can also find me doing the orb with you where we talk about deep space nine so if you enjoyed some of the talk we had tonight with keith about deep space nine what he's been doing on tour with his rewatch Check us out there. And as well, Chris, you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifebetween.wordpress.com. Now, Chris, when you're not uh, catching up on your Klingon Art of Blood Wine book, uh, where can we find you? Now, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, besides doing the orb with you, Matthew, you can also find me on Warp 5, where we talk Enterprise on Continuing Mission, where I interview the people who create Star Trek fan films and hopefully getting into some games there sometime soon as well. Matterstream, which is all about the world inspired by Star Trek. And then, of course, I host The Ready Room with other hosts from all around the network every Wednesday as we talk about Star Trek news and all five live-action Star Trek series. Before we let you go, we'd like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com, the best source for audiobooks online. You can get a free audiobook of your choice as a Trek FM listener by going to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Choose Conversational Klingon or any other book that you like, and you'll get that absolutely free. If at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that book. But you're going to love Audible, I know, and by supporting them, you'll be helping us keep literary treks coming to you every week. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>